The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you join me in Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews chapter 13, as we close out this letter together. Verse 20. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Well, this morning... We bring to a close our study of this letter to the Hebrews. Letter to the Hebrews. This writer, who is unknown, some believe it was Paul, some believe it was someone else, personally believe it was probably someone else, has written a letter to, to this church. Here in these verses, this writer calls it a a word of exhortation in verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. A word of exhortation. This is, this, this letter is a sermon. It's a sermon written from a pastor, from an elder, to a, to a church, probably in or around Rome, if I had to guess. Somewhere, it seems, um, around Italy. To a, to a people, to be read allowed to a church. It's a sermon. You start reading in verse 1 of chapter 1 and read to the end of chapter 13. It'll take you a little over an hour. Mine are short. Don't forget that. This letter closes as all of the New Testament letters, we call them epistles, letters, to local churches, it closes as all of them do with a a benediction. That's where we 
we find ourselves this morning. You may see that heading there in your Bible. Or benediction means literally a good word. A good word. These benedictions, they, they serve us as prayers to God on behalf of the readers. That's essentially what they are. We close each week as we gather together with the benediction. It's a prayer to God that the, God would bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. It's a, it's a prayer. It's a, it's a request to God on behalf of His readers. This is this pastor praying for these people. And it's important to keep this in mind as we get to these verses and as we take in the letter as a whole. It's a a prayer to God for His people. You see all through this letter and each week as we've studied it together, hopefully you've seen that there are all through it many different applications. The primary one being don't fall away. But all through there are all sorts of ways that the the writer of this letter wants this congregation to respond. And by extension, through the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how how God wants us to respond to His His Word, to these Hebrews. It's it's a, a letter of exhortation, of encouragement. It's a sermon. It's a letter of encouragement, of exhortation on how they are to live in the difficult setting that they have found themselves in. It's so important when we come to God's Word that we keep in mind that it isn't just theology for the sake of theology. Though this letter is rich in theology, it is rich in uh, Christology, it's rich in doctrinal teaching, but God's Word is always more than that. It should always do more than just inform our minds. Though it should inform how we we think, but it should change the way we live. That there has to be, when we come to God's Word, there has to be a practical nature with what we learn. How now are we to live? That's that's how the the writer of, of Hebrews closes out. But notice, the plea here isn't ultimately to these hearers, to this congregation. The plea here is to God. It's to God Himself that God would grant to these people, to this church, to these Hebrew believers, that God would grant to them the ability to live for His glory. Church, we absolutely do have the responsibility to respond to all that God's Word teaches with obedience. We have that responsibility. We are are more, the, the sort of philosophical language here is we are morally culpable. We have the moral responsibility, the the human agency to respond to God's Word 
with obedience. But we have to acknowledge that it is impossible to carry this kind of living out apart from the aid of God. That's that's where the writer of Hebrews ends. All of this rich theology, all of this, this, this rich Christology, taking the Old Testament, making it understood in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, applying it to our lives and how we are to live. And then he closes out by saying, Oh, but God, would you do the work? Would you work in them so that they can live for you? Because apart from God's aid, it is impossible to live a life that pleases Him. Church, we need His help. I need His help. You need His help. It's not that at some point you're going to know enough and then voila, you're just going to be able to to live out all of these, these, these things perfectly. No. If we're going to live differently than the rest of the world, if we're going to lead lives that are pleasing to Him, we need His help. That's, that is this benediction. It is a plea to God that He would help these brothers and sisters live for His glory. And that should be our prayer. This is, this is the ending of every epistle. God, would you move in the hearts of your people? This should be our prayer. God, would you move in our hearts as we close out another year and we begin um, a new one. Our prayer should be, God, would you work in our hearts so that we could live for your glory? That's this, this benediction. It's a plea to God and for, for me, at least, I see um, five things that he is asking God for on behalf of his people. Now, four of the five are um, sort of um, inferred in the text. The last one is the, is the obvious um, one, but there, there are nonetheless, I believe, five that we see here. And so if you're a note taker, this will help you follow along. We see a plea for peace, for power, for protection, for promises, and for provision. Now, peace, power, protection, and promises, they're sort of inferred in the text because they are the nature of him who we are giving our plea to. But because they are him, part of his nature, then they are by extension given to us. The first one is peace. And you, you see in verse 20 how he begins this prayer. Now, because of all that, that we've, we've heard, now may the God of peace... The first thing he he acknowledges in his prayer is that God is a God of peace. Now, this is especially important for this church that he's writing to because this church is is headed right into 
some serious conflict with Nero's coming um, great persecution of, of Christians. We've, this, is, this is the setting for most all of um, the New Testament epistles. They, they're written to these churches that are uh, somewhere in Rome, basically, to these believers that are, are, are living in the shifting tides of, of Emperor Nero's persecution of, of Christians. And we've, we've talked about it a number of times, how, how great it was. Probably the, the greatest persecution of Christians that the world has ever seen. And so if these brothers and these sisters needed anything in these coming days, man, they will need some peace. They'll need some peace. Now, I don't think for a second that, that we are in danger of facing that kind of persecution here in our culture, though there are many, countless numbers of brothers and sisters around the world that are. But we, we live in a, in a culture that's shifting, it's changing. And especially here in the South, we've, we've lived for generations in a culture where being a follower of Christ, being a Christian, was, was comfortable. So much so that it was, was almost just expected and assumed, you know. When you're from, you know, central Alabama, your mom and them went to church and you went to church. I mean, that's just the way it is. And those things are, are changing rapidly for us. And just as they needed peace, we're... We need some peace. We need some peace. Maybe your, your life is just personally in a place where you need some peace. Well, here's the really good news for you and the really good news for me, and that is that we have a God of peace. Now may the God of peace. The God of peace. This means that peace is intrinsic to the very character and nature of God. That He is, by His nature, a God of peace. Now, we see that all through the Scriptures. We see six times in the New Testament, God referred to as a God of peace. We see it all throughout the, the Old Testament. Specifically, you see it in the prophecy of the coming Son of God in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, that, that He will be the Prince of Peace. God is, by His nature, by His character, He is a God of peace. That is who He is. Now, there are two ways to understand this phrase, God of peace. There is a, there's a Greek way and then there's a Hebrew way. The Greek way is to understand peace in terms of tranquility. And that just means that God is at peace. Now, notice the, the difference, like a God of peace and a God at peace are, are different things. And so 
When we say God is a God of peace, one of the ways that we mean that, and this word peace can be understood, is that of, of tranquility, meaning that God by His very nature, that He is at peace. That means that, that our God has never been hassled. Not one time. He's never been stressed. He's never been beleaguered. He has always, at all times, in all circumstances, for all of eternity and forevermore, He has been at peace. Tranquil in His nature. Not stressed. Not hassled. At peace. That's the Greek way of of understanding peace as just being tranquil, of, of having a nature of tranquility. God buys very nature has a nature of tranquility. But there's also a, a Hebrew way of, of understanding peace, and that is as shalom. And that means something a little different than tranquility. Shalom, and you've, you've probably, if you've been around church for very long, you've, you've heard, you know, peace in the Hebrew is shalom. It, it carries with it a, a meaning and understanding of completeness of wholeness, of well-being. It means that God, by His very nature, that He lacks nothing. It means that God is not in need of anything. It means that He, in His very nature, is He is complete. He is whole. And he is eternally and forevermore in a state of well-being. He is at peace and he is complete. He is at peace, tranquil, because he lacks nothing. This is the usage in what, what is probably one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. This is the usage in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare. That's the the ESV. But other translations, and in the Hebrew here is shalom, it's peace. Plans for peace and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That this God of peace, this God of shalom, of completeness, of wholeness, This God of peace peace has plans for His people and they include peace for them, wholeness for them, completeness for them. Jeremiah 29, 11 is, is much like Hebrews chapter 13 because here Israel was on the verge of calamity with the coming of the Babylonian captivity and they needed peace. And so God steps in and He says, but take heart, because my plans for you are for your shalom. They are for your welfare, your well-being, your completeness. You see, their world here in Hebrews and there in Jeremiah, their world and our world may be storm-tossed. But we have a God of peace, one who is at peace and one who gives peace. 
Jesus says in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Because God is a God of peace. And because He's a God of peace, He offers to His people His very nature of peace. He is both tranquil and He is complete. And He offers to His people in the midst of difficult circumstances a tranquility in knowing that all of our needs are met and that our God reigns now and forevermore, and that He gives to His people according to His grace. Peace, peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. First part of His prayer is for the God of peace. And that is the same God that we have. A God of peace. Now may the God of peace... And next is a prayer for for power. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the greatest expression of power possible. When I read this, now may the God of peace, who brought again Jesus Christ from, from the dead, when I read that, I... It makes me go, all right, this God is a God of peace. And not only is He a God of peace, at peace, tranquil and and complete and whole, but He is also a God of almighty power, and He proved that power in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. I just love the language here of Paul. It is immeasurable greatness. I mean, this is, this is just, you know... This is, this is lumping the, the hyperbole on top of top on top. But when you're talking about God, it's not hyperbole. It's reality that there is in Him an immeasurable greatness of power. And that this power has been seen, it's been expressed according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. That's why when I read Hebrews 13 and I see who raised Christ again from the dead, my mind goes to not only is this a God of peace, but this is a God of immeasurable greatness of power. Because this power is seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has proven His almighty power by defeating death and raising Christ from the dead. God has proven in Christ Jesus His ability to do the impossible. That's why Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are impossible. Or for all things are possible with God. Now, when I read that, I, I can't think of, of, of Christ's words to, these, to the Pharisees. And they really were the words that got him in trouble um, because they claimed it was an impossibility. And that was, 
I'll tear down this temple, and, but I'll raise it up again in three days. And I go, well, you can't raise this temple in three days. You crazy? I mean, it took Solomon years to build this temple. You think you can do it in three days? But they didn't know Jesus was talking about his body. Listen, that, the, the, the ability to resurrect the dead is more difficult than to build um, a, a construction project in three days. Though sometimes I doubt that personally with my experiences. But it is the truth. But with God, all things are possible because He is the God of immeasurable greatness of, of power. You see, the resurrection proves His power. It proves His power over death. And this power, this immeasurable greatness of His power and His might, this very power is available to us. Romans chapter 8. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. This very same spirit that displayed His almighty power in the resurrection of the dead by grace, through faith, in Christ Jesus, that same spirit of power dwells in us. So he prays, would God, would you, the God of peace, Jesus says, peace I give you, and the God of resurrection power, which dwells in us. You see, his, his, the, the, the inference from this, this prayer is that God would grant to his people, because of who he is, a God of peace and a God of power. He would grant to his people peace and power. This, this by his grace, they are ours as well. God is a God of peace. He's a God of power, but He's also a God of protection. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. The language of imagery and, and of Christ being our shepherd is, is common in the New Testament. It, it might be the, the most common way that he is, he is described outside of you know, messianic titles. Um, one, of, one of the most common ways he's depicted in art, the sheep, is Christ being a shepherd. Christ himself uses this on many occasions. In John chapter 10, he says, I am a good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves and the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own and my own know me. And just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus Christ is the the good shepherd. He is here this, this great shepherd of the sheep. Because unlike a hired hand, he doesn't flee when the wolf comes. Unlike the hired hand, he lays down his life. For the sheep, he is the great, good shepherd. You see this all through the the New Testament. But you also see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the Old Testament as a description of the coming Messiah. Psalm 23 says that the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 80 says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock. Isaiah 40, that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is what a shepherd does. A shepherd leads. A shepherd guides. But where is a, le- where is, where is a shepherd leading and where is a shepherd guiding? He is leading and he is guiding to, to green and safe pastures. This is what Jesus does. He picks up his sheep. He holds them close to his chest. And he says, come with me to a place that is safe and secure and fulfilling. Because in me, as your good shepherd, I will and have stepped in between the sheep and the wolf. You're not getting to this one. This one's mine. I know him and he knows me. This is the office that the God of peace and the God has power of power has given to Christ Jesus. The the office of the good shepherd, the great shepherd. Jesus is this for us. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. And he loves us. And he's proven his love and his care for us in the laying down of his own life. For us, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What Jesus says, the hired hand flees because the hired hand does not care for the sheep. He cares nothing for them. But Jesus cares deeply for us. And he's laid down his life for us. And he leads and guides and protects us even now. And he does it because he is a God of great promises. That's the next phrase. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood 
of the eternal covenant. Now, much of what we've done together in studying this letter of Hebrews, because it's what the reader does, is that we've looked back at how the Old Testament relates to Christ and how Christ relates to the Old Testament. And that, again, is what the writer of Hebrews is doing here as he brings in and uses covenant language. The Old Testament is the expression of the Old Covenant, that there was a way, a covenant, a way that God deals with man and man deals with God. And under the Old Covenant, it was through the law. But Christ came. This is the, this is the argument of, of, the, of the, the whole of the Bible, but especially here in Hebrews. Christ came, and in His coming and in His dying, He has ushered in a new covenant. He has brought in a covenant, not of law, not of works, but one of grace. And this new covenant was ushered in, it was brought in by His blood, through His blood. That's the language. By the blood of an eternal covenant. That there is now in Christ Jesus a new covenant according to His blood. And this new covenant is different than the old covenant. And not only is it, is it different in its, in its nature, in that the, the old covenant was a covenant of law, and the new covenant is a covenant of grace, but it is also different in the, the length of its expression. The old covenant came to an end. It came to an end, not because it was bad, it wasn't bad. There's nothing in the, the, the Scriptures that are, that are bad. The Old Covenant didn't come to an end because it didn't work. We shouldn't think of it that way. Well, that one didn't work, so God just made a new covenant because the old one wasn't working. It's not traded in like an like a, like a old vehicle. No, the old was totally and completely fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. So now there's no need for the old, and in its place is a new one, one of, of grace in Jesus Christ. And it's different in its nature, and it's also different in its, in its length of expression. The old one has come to an end because it was fulfilled in the blood of Jesus. The new one will never end. It is eternal. It is eternal. God had made clear all along that there was a new covenant coming, one of grace. And that this new covenant that was coming would not just be one of the outward practice of law keeping, but it would be one that would, would do the very thing that we need the most, and that is that it would change our hearts altogether. Just by way of reminder, because it's been a little while, Hebrews chapter 8 says of these covenants. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them, them, that's the people, not, not the covenant. When he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. I'm doing away with that covenant. I'm going to establish a new one. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is the nature of the new covenant. I will put my laws into their minds, not just on stone tablets, but into their minds. And I will write them on their hearts, declares the Lord. And I will be their God and they shall be my People, this new everlasting covenant was promised by God of old that there would be one that that would come a new covenant that would change our very nature, change our minds and change our hearts because left on our own. Guess what? We're just like those idiots in the wilderness. We need our hearts changed. We need our minds changed. And God had made a promise that there would be one who would come who would establish a new covenant. God is a God of promises and he is faithful to his promises and he is faithful to his promises for all of eternity. This is an eternal covenant. And it is seen and it is demonstrated in the blood of the Son, our great shepherd, who by the power of God gives us peace through his blood. This, this, this is, this, this verse, this verse is the doxology of the benediction. It's a word of praise to God for who He is according to His very nature and for what He has done. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the eternal covenant. And while this is doxology of God, praise of God, there are, even in these truths, great practical hope for our souls. Because God is a God of these things. He gives these things to us. That's why I say the four are there, but they're there by inference because they are in the the nature and the person and the work of God. But he gives himself freely to us. Then comes the clear petition. If you're going to sort of, you know, uh, chart out, break down the the verses that this 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 is the the clear petition, the word of action. Now, may the God of peace who brought again. The Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the, the eternal covenant, do what? May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The clear petition to God is for provision. May this God equip you. That is, may He provide for you all the things that you need. This word equip is is a very interesting word, and it has a a number of different meanings. It carries with it the meaning of uh, perfection, to, to perfect something. To perfect something. It also carries it with it the meaning to restore something. It is, it is the word used. To, to set or to mend a, a broken bone. To set a bro- broken bone. And so the, 
The author prays, may this God who is these things and who has done these things, may this God provide for you. May he mend your brokenness and give you all the things you need that are good for you. That's his prayer. That's his prayer for them. That's his prayer for us. The King James Version here says, may he make you perfect. Not lacking anything. Now, I think this might be a common prayer for the people of God. A common prayer for the people of God is, God, would you, according to your grace, according to your peace, according to your power, according to your perfection, God, may you, oh God, give me all that I need. That's, that, that is probably a very common prayer for the people of God. And it's not a wrong prayer. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's a very wrong prayer. But I think probably for most of us, when we pray that prayer, our motivation for that prayer probably differs from the motivation of this writer in this prayer. You see, this isn't, oh God, would you provide for these people all of their material and physical needs? No, it is, would you provide for them all the things they need so that through them, through their life, so that through me, through my life, God, you might get great joy. You see, we pray, God, would you give me all of my needs? Because, Lord, we want the joy. But that's not his prayer. But he equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. That which brings you great joy. God, would you give to your people all that they need mend their brokenness, set their broken bones, perfect them in Christ Jesus so that through them, God, you would have great joy and your joy would be to your glory forever and ever. That's his prayer. Now, let me ask you a question, church. What if that became our prayer? What if for the coming year, as a congregation, we said, God, the God of peace, the God of all power who brought again Jesus Christ from the dead. The God of of protection. The great shepherd of the sheep. The God of all promises. The eternal covenant keeping God. Would you provide to us all the things that we need, God, so that in us you would have great joy and your great joy would be to your great glory through Jesus Christ. What if that was our prayer? Individually and corporately, how different would our lives look? How different would our church be? Now that's a prayer. Now that's a prayer. You see, that is what the writer of Hebrews wants for these people who he loves dearly. God, would you give them all that they need for your joy and your glory? 
And that is what God wants for us. That we would live fully for his joy and his glory. And so would we together, would we bear with this word of encouragement? And would we seek these same things? Now may the God of peace brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us, perfecting us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, would you help us in this endeavor? We cannot do it on our own. We need your help. We have to appeal to you, to pray to you, that you, the God of peace, the God of power, the God of protection, the God of promises, that you would, by your grace, provide all the good things that we need, individually and corporately, so that in us you would be well-pleased. And through Christ would receive much glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.